Welcome to another episode of This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. Looking around, it appears that joining me are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're coming to you from the Monongahela Metal Foundry Pavilion here at the Hoople Fair in the heart of beautiful downtown Hoople. This week, we're talking about new analyses of metal ingots found in the Late Bronze Age shipwreck at Uluburun off the southern coast of Turkey. Amazingly, we now know that about one-third of the tin ingots came from mines in Uzbekistan, with the rest originating from much closer mines in southeastern Turkey. What's going on here? Carrying tin thousands of kilometers from Central Asia to the Mediterranean sounds like a real schlep. How was a supply chain organized across such a vast distance, with the major civilizations of Iran and Mesopotamia in between? Who were the middlemen? Were orders faxed in? And what did the local Uzbek tin farmers, well, miners really, get out of it? And how did this really, really, really long-distance trade go on without anyone mentioning it in texts? This isn't one of those wink-wink, I-can-get-you-some-tin-on-the-down-low kind of deals, is it? Okay. Okay, so in the spirit of revealing and apropos lightning rounds, I, I pose this to you. Um, what do you call, what do you personally call the shiny metal paper that you use in the kitchen? And why? Tinfoil? Tin yeah. Tin foil. Um, yeah, I guess so. You? Uh, probably aluminum foil. Do you really? Yeah. I don't know why. Oh. But you know well, what I called it? Last week you mentioned Perry Mason, a show which, <laughs> honest, that that really kind of disturbed me because that was really a show that even at our ages, Old we people only really watch. saw in reruns, like on Channel 11 or 9 or something. Right. And and it wasn't really, it never really appealed to me. It just was like a classic, but it was like, yeah, so what? And now you're saying you call it aluminum foil? <laughs> um, I find those two completely, <laughs> a, a great deal of um, cognitive dissonance. I would like to call it aluminum foil. <laughs> I was waiting for one of us to say that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. you need a little more tweed to pull that one off. <laughs> I've been looking for tweed. I've been, been. Yeah, yeah uh, looking for a, a nice tweed, Harris tweed sport coat. But I don't think I can afford it at the moment, at least not until I pay off the electrician. Good point. Um, I, I will say that growing up, I believe I called it silver paper. Oh, ah. yeah. Yeah, but that might say something about my particular household's terminology more than anything else. <laughs> Silver paper. Silver paper is so aspirational. <laughs> oh, yes, true. yes. We wrap our leftovers in, in silver paper. <laughs> it's made with real silver. It's made with real silver. 
Yeah, that sounds like something that would go with a fainting couch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it should really. Yeah, I didn't have one of those though. And yet I describe the material with its actual actual atomic name. (laughs) (laughs) Possibly its weight. Yeah. (laughs) It's I don't think it's ever been made of tin, has it? The foil? I think I think it must have been at some point. Yeah, otherwise why would it be called tinfoil? They wouldn't call it tinfoil. Yeah. I think that was probably the only metal that that people were familiar with in the uh because they would stamp <laughs> ceiling, they would make ceiling tiles out of uh, tin. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All, right. Yeah, this... All right. So, so once again, we 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 request <laughs> earnestly that our listener write in and and uh, give us some guidance on. No, tin foil was commercially available before its aluminum counterpart. Part. Really? Uh-huh. Okay. Oh. So it could legitimately be called tin foil for a while. Yep. Not okay. that there's a single person left on earth who, who actually used it. Mm. I would think. Oh, that's so, that's so interesting. But where did all the tin for the tin foil come from? Uh-huh. Oh, there we go. <laughs> there we go. The tie in. Should, should, should we say what we're going to talk about? <laughs> well, I think as opposed to the usual project of making the person guess after 20 minutes, the listener. Sure. Sure, let's let's don our speedos yet again. <laughs> Whoa, we put our lab coats over our speedos. And that's that's it. Take a trip right. to Ulubarun, a site off the coast of Turkey, where in 1982 a shipwreck was found. Just to just to add, the ship was not wrecked in 1982. Correct. <laughs> the ship was wrecked in the late Bronze Age in the 14th century BC. <clears throat> and on this ship were all sorts of ingots, um, copper ingots, tin. Um, and apparently the question, or definitely the question had been, where did the tin come from? And there's a lot of other questions too, but, uh, but, but, there was always, but why guess. is tin so important? There you go. Why, why do we lust after tin? <laughs> <laughs> or because you need it to make <laughs> to make bronze B- Bueller Bueller anyone <laughs> you need tin That's and right. copper to make bronze we wouldn't be able to call it the the bronze age without without tin right and one thing I learned um this morning was the usual percentages of copper and tin that you need to make bronze. Oh, yeah. That, um, that's a is, fun fact. You want to throw that out? I'm going to throw it out. Um, you need about 88% copper and 12% tin, which is actually a really useful percentage because you can find copper more easily than you can find tin. Something else I didn't know until today. <clears throat> Anyone else want to speak to this? <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew that copper was more abundant because copper is all over the place and and uh you know copper is even in in you know the southern levant so if it's in the southern levant it must be everywhere <laughs> that's right right because a place exactly because it's literally the last place, place you would in, want to look yeah right. a place more lacking in natural resources other than maybe the you know southern mesopotamia you couldn't find exactly but tin was always a problem and tin the big solution to tin came came out when we were 
sort of uh, in our graduate student careers with the um, property after the by Aslihan Yainer that tin was yeah. coming from the Taurus Mountains. Right. And then um, some uh, the the uh, discovery of some sites that uh, suggested, um, you know, tin mining. Uh, and then this most recent work on the on the metals at Ulubarun confirms the the um, that one of the tin mines being exploited uh, was from you know was from um, the Taurus Mountains. Right, right. So, and the other thing that this recent work confirms is that while uh, two thirds of the tin comes from the Taurus Mountains, um, ah. yeah. One third of the ten of the tin comes from Eurasia, specifically a mine uh, in Uzbekistan, uh, which um, the isotope analysis that they did, uh, well, that's that's what it showed us. So, right. though it is kind of interesting because one of the articles said the mine was in Tajikistan, and right. and the other article said it's in Uzbekistan. But my sense is is that there's one mine. On the uh, Tajiki side, Tajikistan side of the border, and another mine very close to it on the Uzbek Uzbekistan side of the border. Yeah, that... right. Tin is coming from um, from inner Eurasia, from the Eurasia, right. from uh, Central Asian mountains. Right, and that's and that's big news. And the fact that it's been really pretty much narrowed down and and accurately identified as coming from uh, Central Asia is really important for yeah. a lot of reasons, though at the end, I guess we'll talk about just how important this is. I mean, clearly it's very important to accurately understand where provenience for all these kinds of raw materials is coming from and where manufactured materials are coming from and everything else. So that's really important. And of course, the big thing is the creation of a big <clears throat> you know, Eastern Mediterranean, Eurasian, Central Asian world systems. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised that, that that little piece of nomenclature didn't show up in the articles, but that's what we're talking about, a big Eurasian world system in the late Bronze Age. Yeah. Right, yeah, but, I th but aren't we really talking about a couple of different things here? Well, yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> Always. <laughs> Usually at least three, because we're all we're all sort of talking about whatever we're all talking about. <laughs> we're not talking about the same thing. This is a vast right. exercise in parallel play. Right. Right. For, for those of you interested in the notion of authorial intent, you've come to the wrong place. But but, but here's here's the thing. The thing of it is. <clears throat> Corn, not corn. <laughs> it's all yeah. about corn. <laughs> no, I'm just looking. I'm looking at an article about uh, tin um, from Cornwall. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, right. Uh, found in a late Bronze Age shipwreck off of Haifa. Okay. Uh, I'm not even going to throw that. I'm just going to throw that out there, <laughs> just to confuse things. Very but, good. But Some, wouldn't... <clears throat> what? Go ahead. No, go ahead. No. Oh, thank you. <laughs> But aren't, you know, we, we talk about, oh, world systems or co-prosperity spheres or whatever kind of, you know, big, fancy macro uh, macro structures that uh, 
<clears throat> that sort of tie everything together. But really, we're talking about lots and lots of very differently scaled and organized local processes yes. um, because the the tin the tin farmers of Uzbekistan. Well, we can call them miners. I mean, there is a, a perfectly good term for, for what those are tin they? meisters are up to. They're not farming, they're mining. That's true. Right, but, and, but we don't really know if they were Tajiks or Uzbeks. Well, that's yeah. the question. So that's apologies. That's... apologies well, we know, there. hold it, hold it. We know yeah. they're neither Tajiks nor Uzbeks, because those are right. <laughs> right. But I, I think one of the questions that I want to raise um, is who were they? Because this area... It's been pointed out. I was going to save this for later, but I'll say it now. This area was a pastoral area, small communities. Um, and but that doesn't necessarily mean that the miners were the same people as the pastoralists living there, although the articles kind of assume that they were. There are lots of right. possibilities. They could the miners could be slaves, the miners could be captives, the they miners could be trans could be egalitarian um hunter-gatherers. For all we know. For all we know. Or they right. could be people from the Western Mediterranean brought in specifically to do no. the mining. No, uh, no, no. No, that's, come on. No. I, I think that, that, <laughs> that's, that, that's one thing that's, that's not happening. That you jumped the tin shark there. Yeah, really, yeah, really. I don't know. Think about um, Kultepe much earlier, much different, where we wouldn't know from archaeology that there were were Assyrians there if we hadn't had the yeah, but the Assyrians right, at Kultepe were, were traders. They weren't. Yeah, they weren't you know, mining. They weren't miners or or you know the herders. What are uh, the local uh, people getting in exchange for mining this tin? In that case, pat well, on the back. That, what? Okay, now you sort <laughs> sense of, of a job ahead. good done. Uh, good job, well done. Well, that's what I thought. Right. right. You sort of jumped ahead to the conclusions. I know, but why not? That's more. <laughs> I'm more than happy to to get into the conclusions. Our listeners shouldn't have to wait. And so, firstly, it's it, Alex. You you you've done a really nice job at um, you know uh, synthesizing everything. It's a lot of small scale processes that build up, and the sum of the you know the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. That's one big thing. The sec for me, the second big thing for me is that it's really good that we know you know all of the technical and pre prevenient aspects to these kinds of things, but it doesn't enhance our understanding of the Eastern Mediterranean co-prosperity sphere or really our understanding of even how trade works in the late Bronze Age, because we don't have texts that delineate who's doing the trading and how much they're making and those kinds of things. So, it's a it's a important piece of the puzzle, but it really doesn't right now, at least, doesn't change our understanding. It expands a, the geographical extent of the puzzle, right? But it, it but right. does it? And here's the issue: we already know that Central Asia participates routinely in the ancient Near East and the Eastern Mediterranean because of the movement of lapis, and that's been mm -hmm. going. That's been moving around since what? Since you know, solidly in, in the fourth millennium. So, right. and we know that Lapis comes from the Badakhshan province in Afghanistan. So we've already known that. Uh, and this just adds a second, but significantly different than Lapis it, is that it's a lot of stuff, right? Th this is tons of tin that's being moved from 
Central Asia to the Near East and then on to the Eastern Mediterranean. So I think that there is a scalar issue that's of great interest. Uh, and I think that there's also a, a sort of a, I don't know what the right word is for this, but um, a dissonance involved in that this big scalar issue, right? All yeah. of this tin, right? Tons of tin being moved by caravan across Eurasia. Right. Never crops up in the texts in right. any kind of really informative way. Right. It gets all the way to Western Asia and we don't hear about the movement. Yet. No one, I mean, and and these texts mention all sorts of crazy stuff, right? The Mari text mentions Zimri Lin, you know, acquiring ice and, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. But nobody seems to mention tons of tin being moved on donkey caravans from yeah. the mountains of, of Central Asia to, you know, the coast of the Levant. And that I find, you know, I think that's really kind of interesting. It's, yeah, right. it is. And, and the other thing is that in between um, these these tin mines and, um, you know, and the the Mediterranean coast, excluding the Eastern Mediterranean societies of the Levant, there are a lot of tin consumers. Yes. Like, let's right. call them, let, let's call it Mesopotamia, where they <laughs> use the whole mess of tin and other metals. And all the, uh, all the, you know, Iranian highland and lowland societies, which were also very into metal. So, and, and, but again, to, to your point, point we know anything significant about the tin trade um <clears throat> from texts in these in these periods which suggests to me that there's an enormous enormous amount of commodity basic commodity movement at all sorts of levels organized unorganized um disorganized that, <laughs> very disorganized <laughs> I didn't order this. What is this? <laughs> <laughs> I ordered 12 monkeys and you show up at my house with two tons of tin. Send this back. Just keep it. <laughs> well, no, that's very interesting, actually. But, but finish your thought. It's and it it's it's obviously there, but it's sort of invisible. And it's... in in a sense, or at least the the economic basis, the, well, the socio-political basis of it. Right. Is, right. is invisible. So right. so Bus it's form. down the line, right? I'm not, and again, I think I've said this in other contexts, the people at the Mediterranean coast may not be realizing exactly where this tin originated. And yeah. um, it's also, it's a supply chain issue. And, you know, <clears throat> with the pandemic, we never, sitting here in the United States East Coast, we never really thought that toilet paper not being on the shelves would be an issue because we don't really think about how things move that we use every day and and um, at what point the whole system gets stopped up. And I think in the same way, the people who are putting the... <laughs> the <laughs> what? What? Nothing. The people who are putting the copper and the tin together to make the bronze are not necessarily aware of where the tin comes from. Sure. Of course not, as long as they get it. Yeah. Right. right. And the and the suppliers out there in you know Central Asia. Well, 
what, I mean, what do they what do they know about their customers? Right. But it's actually in many regards, it's not so different and not to be presentist, but it's not so different <laughs> than today where we know that miners and producers of lots of important cash crops, uh, the growers of those make the least amount of money, have the least sort of degree of social complexity that they're just, you know, growing coffee beans in very, very small rural enclaves they make the least amount of money out of it um mining traditionally has been like that and that the people who make the most money are the people who invest in the logistics mm -hmm. and that's the same today with coffee with legal and illegal drugs all of these kinds of things it's right. all about logistics and the logistics yeah. well i mean you know if you watch breaking bad you know it's not about production it's about logistics that's where all the you know, that's where the the that's where everything costs the most. And that's where all that, that cost is. Right. But to be right. fair, a there's a, a higher probability that produce tin producers, miners mm -hmm. and and uh, distributors in the Taurus Mountains had a closer relationship with their consumers and a better understanding of markets mm -hmm. and market conditions just on the basis of of proximity right then sure. then miners way out there in central asia who are just mining right and, well, and it's going where to them it's going it's wherever going it's going the, to the next village the next town down right. the line but that's um, presumably because the hittites controlled the right. territory yeah. in which the taurus mountain tin mines are found so and the hittites were been, very Go ahead, yeah, been bound up in the whole imperial system Right. So, right. But, you know, you can look at the Wadi Fainan and copper and, you know, that's more analogous. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And regardless of claims of there being an Edomite state in the 12th century, um, Wadi Fainan is remarkably non-complex, at least in terms of sociopolitical things for almost its entire history. I mean, even the Edomite state in the in the ninth and eighth and seventh centuries is pr pretty bare bones. So, I, you know, I think that the tin supply in the Taurus is more exceptional than usual or routine. Right. Only on the basis of proximity. Right. Um, because it falls within uh, a, an, an imperial, an imperial territory. And it's, it's simply closer to, the sources uh, to the consumers and the, and the users and, you know, copper production on the Island of Cyprus um, was all tightly wound up with producers and consumers. That's and right. there one could posit that, you know, somebody pulled up in a boat and said, you know, give me 10 tons of, of, of ingots stat. Mm -hmm. I have a buyer, you know, across the, across the pond. Well, I think we need to back up. And I know it was my fault that we jumped ahead to begin with. But now you want to back up. Now I want to back up because I think we should talk about, you know, the ship itself and where it was coming from, at least most recently, and where it was heading and um, what else was on it. And because it's not just transporting tin, it's transporting and, and copper, it's transporting a lot of other stuff too. Um, so, so I think we should lay that right. out well okay it started from this tropic port aboard this tiny ship <laughs> to, 
<laughs> Sorry. Right. Well, and and the nature of late Bronze Age ship, ships, to judge by their shipwrecks, seems to be that they would go from point from you know down the line, circling in the Mediterranean, hopping around, going from here to there and there there to here, picking up this, dropping off that, picking up that, dropping off this, with multi generally sort of multi ethnic crews, um, right. and. A little bit of this, a little, a little bit of that, sometimes more of this. It's the whole trying to emphasize the imports over the exports kind of, <laughs> right. kind of scenario. Right. But um, it seems it seems like on this particular voyage, before it went down, it was heading from the east to the west, possibly to the Aegean. And um, it had already picked up stuff from the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, um, stuff that had come over land like tin. Um, the copper ingots uh, seem to be from copper from Cyprus. Um, and there's all sorts of other stuff, both luxury goods and tools and everyday things. And um, and again, these raw materials. So it's a like you're saying, it's it's a mix of all sorts of commodities, both raw goods and and actual finished products all being traded. So that's what was on the ship. Well, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us about international trade. Um, and, and it's it, nearly a tautology. And and it, it, but it also makes me wonder. So obviously, you've got your your seamen, your your crew. Do you also have merchants who are not sailors, sort of shepherding various goods from place to place? Well, I'm not getting on that boat. <laughs> well, this is the thing. We know a lot about Eastern Mediterranean trade. But we also don't know a lot about Eastern Mediterranean trade yeah. because the texts don't give us that kind of information. Um, yeah. And that's and that's kind of interesting. You know, we have this very clear sense of the Eastern Mediterranean politically with the Hittites controlling the northern half and the Egyptians co the, uh, um, controlling the southern half. And the line between them is, you know, roughly around um, uh, Ugarit, a little south of Ugarit. Um, but the, but the economy flows in an east-west direction, right? And yeah. we don't really have too much specific information on, you know, things like taxation and production. O outside of Ugarit itself. Right. But even Ugarit doesn't give us. It's a very like late sort of particular slice. Yeah. But it doesn't even tell us if the trade is entrepreneurial or in any way state run either yeah, that's a good point you know either in ugarit itself and cyprus places where we don't really know who's doing it and we don't know the composition of the crews and we don't know we don't have any itineraries we right have so itineraries. we have itineraries from you know from ebla very specific trading itineraries of where things are going and coming from and the stops that these caravans make across the Syro-Anatolian highlands and all that kind of thing. But we don't have any itineraries for the um, for Eastern Mediterranean trade, which you would think we would would be included because, you know, they're all communicating information to each other. But um, you're, you're absolutely right. But what we do have um from this exact period, from well, from the Amarna period, is we do know a lot about international elite trade. We know about 
Mesopotamian, Babylonian, and other princesses being, you know, so traded, one could say, down down to Egypt. Um, we know about um, Egypt sending really inadequate gold, which when you melt it down, it's not pure gold, back to Babylonia. So we know about uh, certain commodities uh, from this period, but that's an elite trade. Those That's caravans, I assume, that's all over land. Um, so we do know a little bit about about uh, what's going on, but we don't know about sort of the non-royal trade. And I think we should distinguish between the royal materials that there is written material about and the elite and everyday stuff that there is not. Right. Well, but I think my point stands. Yeah, we know what's being traded. We know what the prestige items are. <clears throat> we know some of the production centers based on provenience and you know, stylistic aspects, but we still don't know how Egyptian, crappy Egyptian gold is getting to Mesopotamia. We don't know who's mediating that. Mm-hmm, we don't right. know the size of the caravans. We don't right. know if there are any taxes that are being paid. We don't know the itinerary, the route that's being taken. So yeah, we we know the basic outlines and we think that that's a lot, but we don't know a lot a lot of a lot of the details Fair point. Well, for for ugarit which is the best and again s- slightly skewed kind of picture into late bronze age uh, maritime trade there are a lot of texts that talk about <clears throat> grain being right. exported there are a lot of texts that talk about metals because they talk about prices and and equivalents between silver and tin and and gold but it doesn't say much about the produce who the producers or consumers of these commodities are. Um, there's a obviously, or oil. if it's entrepreneurial or state run, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, we always assume it's entrepreneurial because of lots and lots of studies from earlier time periods about you know flag and all of that uh, flag and trade and that kind of stuff. But right. but we really don't know if if the if it's entrepreneurial activity from Ugar, we surmise that it is, or from Alasha, um, undoubtedly other places, but we don't know if these you know ships from the <clears throat> Mycenaeans are palace run ships or private families. We know they're great families all over the place. Like I said, we lack a lot of the details, but we think we know a lot about the trade. Don't don't you think when you look at the cargo of Ulubarun that it is entrepreneurial, not not well, uh, at 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 Ugarit, there are, are are leading merchant kind of families, right? And um, their banks, which are which are you know banking commodity trading kind of institutions, right? And that's where most of the texts come from. We don't have texts from, you know, the lower levels, so to speak, of of society. So again, our picture is is heavily weighted towards oligarchs, as it is in in lots of periods. But you know, simply to go back to the tin and its sources, it's pretty inconceivable that Central Asian miners are being organized by Ugaritic oligarchs, as opposed to responding to a demand that is somehow generated in the eastern mediterranean or eastern and central mediterranean really and and the word gets out 
word gets out thousands of kilometers to the east like oh yeah there's a market for this metal mm -hmm. stuff that right but it's not tripping over right but this doesn't happen in the late bronze age this is already well established in the middle bronze age i mean there is there aren't any specific texts from Kultepe about where tin is coming from other than the Taurus, but they do mention tin coming from the east. So we know that these eastern sources are supplying tin certainly by the beginning of the second millennium. And we know that these mines, or now we know that these mines are existing already, at, I think it's said in the early Bronze Age. But um, I mean, by the late Bronze Age, all of this this whole, you know, supply chain has been kind of worked out. Right. And, 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 and again, going back to, you know, going to modern kinds of analogs, you know, <clears throat> these kinds of cash crops or cash, you know, or commodities that are really important and really essential and produce a lot of cash. Um, they're well known and, and, and the people at the bottom have always been way at the bottom. So I'll give you a, a, another comparison for, you know, contemporary world. Um, smartphones can't be made without this incredibly rare mineral called coltan, which stands for something much longer. And 80% of the world's coltan comes from um, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. Hmm. So... Um, and the mining of this stuff is done in the most rudimentary way with picks and plastic sieves and shovels mm -hmm. uh, in the mud. And yet this, and it's all very disorganized at the very bottom and the mm -hmm. miners are impoverished and make almost nothing. And yet this is a commodity without which our entire, entire contemporary world would completely crash and burn. So, right. And the contrast to that is lithium mining. Lithium mining, which takes place in South America and other and other places, which and lithium is critical to batteries, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and it's it, it's not um, you know sort of low level disorganized. It requires immense amounts of uh, immense areas to create these gigantic leaching ponds and all sorts of incredibly horrible toxic chemicals which then sit out in the open and let the the material you know, precipitate or evaporate whichever whichever it does and it's only possible the same way that um other commodity ever other kinds of you know metal mining is today at scale with gigantic highly capitalized corporations right but but my point is <laughs> right but clearly that's not an analog no, no, I'm just right. saying that there's a there's a right. contrast right. between but, these. What I'm trying these... to talk about is an analog, and clearly we have a very good analog right. in the modern world for what was going on with tin in the second yeah. millennium BCE. Right. So it, that, right. No, as opposed to copper, beautiful. which was which was done at scale by very organized entities. Right. Though no, again, going looking at the Wadi Fainan and understanding that there's lots of different interpretations of what kind level of state that suggested copper the copper industry did not make places any more complex than they needed to be to get the copper out and timna is another example though timna was sort of under the control of the um egyptians until you know the iron age one and then 
again, there's lots of interpretations of how complex the mining yeah. settlement at Timna was, but you can certainly make an argument that it wasn't all that complex. And we've talked about that. It, it just has to be, let's, it just has to be at scale. of so right. Just, right. So let's go back to this tin mining in Uzbekistan, um, because the only thing I read about settlement, you know, besides generally that they're pastoralists, the only thing I read about the settlement is small occupations you find incised courseware um, and ceramics that are typologically similar to, um, to, to, to local, other local wares um, that pastoralists were using. So right. apparently the miners are just using wherever they're from. And I'm, I, you know, what I, you guys knocked me down immediately when I said, well, maybe they're coming in from the West to do the mining, but okay. But so if they're locals, they're just, they're just kind of living near the mines temporarily. Um, who's supervising them? Um, is it a local person supervising them? Who discovered the need for supplies in the West? Like who discovered this, this need, um, the supply need? Um, and and did they organize themselves? Are they being forced by a city leader or by a tribal leader? I mean, I don't know anything about the archaeology of Bronze Age um, and Bronze Age uh, Uzbekistan. I don't think there's a there wasn't a lot of information on what on what these sites are, and a lot of the terminology was pretty loose. Right, I agree, about... and I think that's one of the major issues here. That before we could go farther with this discussion it would be really good to have some archeological data about the settlements near the mines. That was really a red flag of, of missing stuff. Maybe not. Well, I don't, flag. that's not what the article is about. Well, yeah, <laughs> to, but to that's fair. what we need to discuss. That's what we need to discuss. The mining is. No, is... I, I think that, I think the, the key issue that you're getting at, if I may speak for you, <laughs> which, I'll go right ahead, I'll go right ahead is that, um, you know what's the what's the relationship between supply and demand and there's yeah. no there there's no real reason to think that um <clears throat> that people from the center are going out to the peripheries um to actually that way. to to actually organize the locals to do the to do the mining or or organizing expeditions to do it themselves on some sort of avatar like we're going to land on this planet and just take the stuff scenario not not unheard of in the world by the no, way no no not not at all but in I, fact I, usually the the mode of of subsistence with colonial whatever but this isn't colonial yeah but this isn't that. colonial this is this, this is, is exploitative uh, well, is, is it? it i mean i don't i don't think it's exploit I don't Could think it it's exploitative, except in the sense that a resource was being exploited within the context of a very, very complex network of economic and oh, social right. relationships. So, okay, again, this whole oh no, no, not co complex in the sense of it takes place over a very great distance, and there's a lot of little intermediate steps. That's all. Right. Right. We have no we have no reason to think there are trading companies that are exactly no uh, are the people state who are, expeditions and stuff like that. I want to go back to the analogy, JP, that you brought up. Are the people who are mining whatever this is that's in all of our cell phones aware of the fact that they are supplying this extremely important material that everybody in the world uses? Yeah. Um, well, and if, it's, and if so. I, when when will they figure out that they really need to be charging a whole hell of a lot more for what they're doing? Well, well I when, think the children. I think the children who were mucking around in the mud and using their little fingers to you know 
push this stuff through the sieves are have a very poor bargaining position. Right. For, I think we can't, the analogy that I, I brought up that analogy just to show you that complex societies based on this technology get their mind materials in very simple ways. Yeah. There's a whole political context that is right. central to all of that. And you, I think that's what to, we're getting at when we talk. Right, about it's hard to pull. I don't want to get into that whole thing. Yes, they're aware of it, but they don't have any method of adjudicating right. the government right. of the DRC. So I, I think we can't really get into all of that. But, for but I think ocean, that, that your analogy goes farther because the same way as there are modern political issues at play here and the little children pushing the things through the sieve, I think that's that's kind of the analogy is really apt because that's what might be going on with well, um, the there's camp. a political context <laughs> between between Uluburun and Uzbekistan. There's a lots of political context through which this commodity has to flow. Correct. And we don't know anything really about it um, except in terms of exchange rates and occasional references to caravans. And so I'm looking now at an article that's talking about, you know, an Ugara texts an Ugara text about donkeys and you know, you give me the donkeys, I can get you the goods. And, you know, there's another one about, um, you know, we're exchanging cloth and you've, you're you going to give us tin and stuff like that. But the involvement of political entities, states, empires, tribes, towns, kin groups, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's the only aspect of this that, that could be called complex in that in the sense of there's a lot of it okay ha ha <laughs> <laughs> cat's got your tongues eh I, mean, I was just trying to break down how little we know about our own society in terms of complexity and how little we think well, about and and, and where basis. things come from yeah we we know very little about where things come from right yeah. but that's an that's the one of the most important things about complex society is it's so highly specialized that every element within the society has no idea of how the hell it runs or works. And there we see go. that demonstrated all the time. Right. Um, you don't so want to know. I mean, that's actually, that's actually an interesting thing. They, to a certain degree in the antiquity, in the second millennium, they might not, they might've known a whole lot more than about mm. all aspects of their big trade networks and how things were produced than we do because we don't know anything. Yeah, I mean, we don't know how yeah. cell phones work or what's in cell phones or anything else. But right. my God, are we dependent on them? We're right. using technology that you know somehow you guys are on my screen and I'm talking to you. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> we're a long, a long way from copper wires vibrating. Right. Oh, copper. Well, See. I I think they knew how things certain things worked. But what they didn't know, because communications over great distances were <laughs> difficult to impossible, they didn't know about um, the relationships between producers and consumers. Right. So yeah. it's entirely conceivable to me that a coltan <laughs> miner in in the Congo knows exactly what the the material is for and where it goes and how it and you know and its significance but can't do they can't do anything about it because of the political arrangements under which 
they live as opposed to a tin miner in Uzbekistan who says, we know how to make the tin or extract the tin and process it. We have no idea where the hell it goes. It goes in that direction. Right. That's West. As long as we get paid. As long as we get paid. And what are they getting paid with? And it's well, just the local down the line, the next closest thing to them. We don't see anything <clears throat> else coming in from far away. Right. We don't, and that we don't know anything about anything east of, you know, Iran. Well, yeah. How things are working, anything east. But again, you know, we know about these big Eurasian trade networks from the fourth millennium on. Um, we know about chloride bowls, right? Right. Oh, good point. And Tepe Yaya and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. We know about in the Indus Valley, in the right. mid even bigger areas, mid second, mid third millennium, right. that there are figurine styles that come from Central Asia uh, and that are going back and forth. So we know there's interaction between uh, mountainous Central Asia and the Indus. Um, and the chloride bowls are a good example because because those those bowls actually sort of coalesce into a series of styles, the intercultural right. style. So right. over thousands of kilometers east to west, there's a there's a an integrated set of ideas about yeah this is how you make a bowl mm -hmm. this right. is how this is what the market wants it to look like right and this is how we communicate um, <clears throat> in order to sell our sell our goods and um and you know they may not have profound meanings uh encoded in the symbols or something but yeah this is what the consumers want give the people what they want right but that actually is a profound meaning to figure out some degree of commonality across thousands of kilometers and many different language groups and behavior groups and all of that just to find a mark just to create a market is a little bit profound because it becomes standard operating procedure for planet it earth is some can something be a little bit profound or is that like being a little bit pregnant um well that's like being overly you know incredibly complex <laughs> I mean, every 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 frigging thing from you know the beginning of plant animal domestication in the hands of a academic is incredibly, incredibly complex. complex every one of our own ideas you know talks about the incredible complexity of what i'm about to tell you right and, well, my ideas. right and it's you know it's yeah. both yeah, it's well, and, and we can say the same thing about about uh, the metal trade, certainly in the in the late Bronze Age, because there was a kind of template for what an ingot looked like. There are a couple right. of templates. Yeah, there are a couple of templates. And yeah. you know, they can look like kind of roundish lozenges, buns, <laughs> or they could look like buns, or they could look like the so-called ox hides. Yeah. Right. And well, I didn't and quite follow the argument that made in these articles that oxide ingots may have come from the east i think that was a little bit yeah i didn't i in, didn't in ox, notice in, that in oxide well. form yeah, yeah that the oxide form yeah. may not be uh western so much as eastern. right or cypriot in particular yeah. what's yeah, the I, what's the easternmost attestation of an well, oxide it was, a, it was a little bit of a convoluted argument the fact that there was Eastern tin found in the earliest oxide ingots from Crete. 
which date to about are, 15. Are there are there oxide ingots in Mesopotamia? Well, that's there didn't there didn't seem to be the early no the earliest oxide ingot is from Crete in the in fifteen hundred. Okay, and it seemed like all of the examples are Eastern Mediterranean, mm. but that's something that. And and again, we should go back to the fact that that they're made in these shapes because it's easy to stack and uh, convenient to stack, especially if you're shipping. You need to be able to pile these appropriately and maybe use some of them as ballast in different parts of your ship. And I think that's something. Right. As opposed to, well. let's say, making an ingot that's one meter, uh, a one meter cube. <laughs> or even 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 worse spherical <laughs> <laughs> rolling all over the ship they, these things are really exactly well, they right. experimented with that exactly once <laughs> yeah right, exactly right, and right. a word that, got out that was cape galadonia wreck <laughs> <laughs> never again <laughs> the spherical we've learned right. our lesson but um, but but oxide is a little bit more because there's lots of different shapes that could have they could have come up with to you know, yeah. to test and to all of that. The oxide is a little bit wacky, you know. I think you can carry it easily. Maybe four people carrying a, oh, a maybe. bunch of them. Well, yeah. I, the, the classic handles, right? The classic, yeah. aren't there Egyptian depictions in tombs of, you know, one guy with a, a, a thing propped over his shoulder? I think there are. Oh, yeah, there might be. And, okay. I can't think of but, it. But. but, you know, be that as it may, if somebody came, came to you with an ingot <laughs> that was in a in a radically different shape. Um, yeah. Yeah. You'd, you'd go. Right. Yeah. We talked about this once before, but I don't remember the context that the shape of these things is kind of like packaging, right? And you would know where things came from because if everybody makes from, from the same place, makes their ingots in this shape, then you know the ingots shaped like this always come from here. So it's kind of like, you know, consumer recognition right. or, or merchant recognition. Yeah, base, I think maybe when we mentioned base ring. Maybe base ring, um, right. The opium. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that that's also possible for the, I mean, I, I think that's what we read somewhere that it's possible for this. Um, but uh well, that 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 kind of branding or or packaging yeah. uh, speaks to interaction <clears throat> over a particular over a particular area, and <clears throat> you know there's a level yeah. of integration between producers, uh, shippers, and consumers that that suggests that everybody had an un there was this understanding, right? Uh, mm -hmm. There was a there was a template, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um and we didn't even i don't know there's probably something we didn't talk about uh, well what, what, <laughs> i'm looking through my notes i think i've talked about everything that i do we, we don't want to talk about um cornwall oh no the only thing i wanted to say is i thought that i read that they don't think that any right. of this tin comes from cornwall that's what i thought Right, yeah. but so but there is there about. has been recent um, research showing that uh, or suggesting that there is tin from Cornwall in very late Bronze Age, early early Iron Age uh, shipwreck. But that would be the same set of contingencies that we just talked about flipped over to the west. Correct. Right. Correct. It, it simply right. expands the the co prosperity sphere or the world system into into a different into a different area right um and and very different cultures 
I guess right. what we could say, though, is this particular ship, Ulubarun, at on this particular voyage, which turned out to be its last, was not <laughs> including... Well, this is sounding like the Edmund Fitzgerald. <laughs> ...was not including tin from, from Cornwall. Um, but that doesn't exclude other ships from including right. tin from Cornwall. Right. And, and in this period, and certainly in slightly later periods, you have other metals coming from west to east, like silver. Well, and yeah. that's what I was going to just brief. I didn't want to, I don't think we should start talking <laughs> about this necessarily, no. <laughs> but talking about silver and levels of social complexity, et cetera, in Spain hmm. is, is the same kind of, you know, again, the same kind of issues that we've just gone over here. Yeah. Um, yeah. It right. didn't. But the mining but, itself doesn't necessarily make you complex. No, just like coffee beans. I mean, I think that the parallels are very similar to coffee beans and um, poppies uh, yeah. and opium and things like that. Um, because the miners and the producers and the coffee bean uh, farmers always make very little, always live at a subsistence level and always have very, very kind of a rudimentary rural society. Um, and it's the people who are creating the market and moving the stuff. They take on a lot of risk also. And we know about risk because, again, of Kultepe, we know that, you know, mm -hmm. there was a lot of risk and reward uh, in the whole, um, you know, Karam system. Um, but again, it's the logistics um, yeah. Yeah. where the money is to be had. And that, you know, that's borne out by Ula Barun, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think. Um, Who's the real victim here? <laughs> the, the, the very, very small local tin mines in, in, uh, in wherever. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So I'll, I'll throw out a final, a final, final thought. thought. Yeah. I still want to know um, who's getting on. <laughs> you want to know the unknowable. I want to know the unknowable. I want to know who's getting on the ship on the Mediterranean side before oh, yeah. it headed west and and sinks. I want to know besides the sailors who are good at, you know, calculating tides and so on, I want to know not that good. People who are good at calculating apparently yeah, you're right. <laughs> not that good at calculating tides. But um no, you know, people who know the price of a pork belly are not the same people who can who can fly an airplane, right? So so you've got <laughs> That's a that's a bumper sticker I've ever heard. Of. <laughs> right. I think so. See, obviously, um, they did not have the professor on this trip. They didn't. Right. No. That's right. To go back to that, right? Because <laughs> he could have fashioned a radio out of a coconut <laughs> and called for help. <laughs> yeah, and he also would have known the price of tin in Uzbekistan. Oh, no doubt. Um, but I'm just saying that there. Do you see what I'm saying? That there are probably merchants who are not sailors on board as well. And that's a whole other aspect of this that we can't really talk about now. Um, but I, I, I just thought I'd mention it again. And yeah. That's yeah, that's an important point. Yeah. And that, again, speaks to the issue of how little we know. Right. <laughs> what are your final two on a regular basis on this broadcast? <laughs> <laughs> uh, any last words, Professor Dussel? I just think that uh, eventually we're going to push out the uh, expanse of the Eurasian uh, networks, trade networks, and, and uh, you know, connect connectivity to the entire old world. Mm -hmm. And then we'll just say, oh, yeah, well, it was a whole big interconnected old world.
Right. Well, um, they're getting vanilla. Right. Um, so uh, they're getting monkeys. <laughs> no, that's the great. They're they're moving monkeys from like Madagascar to Crete. Yeah. Yeah. This kind of crazy, crazy stuff. So well, tin- are they moving monkeys or are the monkeys moving themselves? Do they just <laughs> well, hop on the ship and it's like, oh my God, there's <laughs> monkeys. Monkeys have taken and, over the ship. You know, you leave with four monkeys, and by the time you end up in in the Mediterranean, all of a sudden you have thirty monkeys. <laughs> so you know, we, we really don't know. Monkeys have agency, right? So you know, monkeys can be making decisions on their own. Like you know, we're getting off this this rainy island. <laughs> this, you know, we've heard there's really good weather in the Eastern Mediterranean. That's right. And so. oh, look, a ship. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Alex, well, final thoughts? Um, stay away from the circular ingots, kids. <laughs> Been tried. Didn't work out. No need to try it again. Okay. 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 Um, wait a minute. I'm looking for the stop. Oh, there. Well, this episode makes me want to shine up all of my very dull ingots. In the meantime, though, we'd like to thank Erez Dessel, Community Engagement Coordinator for the Chicago Philharmonic, for our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Monongahela Metal Foundry, the foundry that casts its ingots with the housewife in mind. And so, to get in touch, leave us a comment. Send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, it's all one word, at gmail.com, Or just hit the little heart-shaped button, you know, the like button at the bottom. That always makes us feel good. Or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.